Welcome, friends, to The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice or surge. This is the podcast where we explore the weekly Christian scripture readings with an eye toward racial justice and collective liberation. My name is Nicola Torbett. I use she and her pronouns, and I'm recording this at my home, which is on the ancestral and unceded homelands of the Ohlone people in what is now known as Oakland, California. This podcast is aimed at white Christians like me, who want to respond to the call to dismantle white supremacy. We recognize that as white Christians, we have our own particular work to do. That is, it is our responsibility to learn how to resist the forces of white Christian supremacy from which we've benefited and with which we are otherwise complicit. We are seeking to find and uproot white supremacy wherever it shows up, including in our own Christian tradition. Before we jump into the heart of the scripture today, I wanted to take a moment and invite you all to join me in connecting to our bodies, to whatever degree that is available to each of us today. Some days it's really hard to get in touch with my body. And if today is one of those days for you, that's okay. Dissociation has been a really important survival tactic for a lot of us, living as we do in the midst of so much violence, some of it directed at us, much of it directed at people around us, all of it really hard to be present to. We have these mirror neurons, you know, and so even if we aren't the ones being targeted, our bodies are impacted. So lots of gentleness around any attempt to re-enter your body if it's not been a safe place for you. I do think the effort is worthwhile. I believe that if more of us were able to live in our bodies, we would be more likely to rise up and refuse to tolerate this level of brutality. But it's hard going. Anyway, if you can, see if you can feel into the center of your body which for many of us is right around or just below the belly button. How are you doing in there? Can you feel that part of your body? How about if you move your attention up to your diaphragm, your heart, the middle of your chest, your shoulders, your throat, your neck and head? Then moving down, how's your pelvis doing today? your butt and hips and thighs, then on down to your legs, to your feet and toes. Now, if you can stay there with your body, great. I'm going to try out some words on you and I want to see how your body reacts. You're gonna have thoughts too, and that's great, but see if you can also notice how your body responds. The first word is unity. What does your body think of unity? How about peace? How about maturity? What does your body do with that one? These are a few key words from the scripture passage we're going to be focusing on this week. And I'm hoping that by staying with our bodies as much as we can, we can sort of feel our way into a conversation about the scripture and how it works to serve or dismantle white supremacy. Let's move there now. 
it's a funny thing about being now four years into this podcast project. It turns out I've done episodes on two of the scriptures in this week's lectionary. If you're looking for something on the Exodus passage, you can check out The Meat Pots of White Supremacy from September 24th, 2017. And for the John passage, you can listen to an episode from August 19th, 2018, called No More White Nationalist Bread. This time around, we're going to be looking at the lectionary passage from Ephesians, chapter 4. Now, I have some mixed feelings about Paul and his imitators. I guess there's some question about whether Paul actually wrote this letter. And then in Ephesians specifically, whoever wrote it, there is that choice bit about how wives should submit to their husbands because husbands are the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, Christ's body, yada, yada. To which I'm like, no, and also no, and by the way, no. So there's that. And also, I think it is really interesting to look at Paul as an organizer, which is really what he was, right? I've been thinking about organizers this week in the wake of Bob Moses' passing. Bob Moses was an organizer's organizer, and he played a huge role in the Southern Freedom Movement of the 1960s. We can learn a lot from what he did and how he talked about it. I'll put some links to more about him in the transcript. So anyway, I'm trying to look at Paul in that light these days. The guy did have vision, that's for sure. He envisioned nothing less than the reconciliation of the whole world to God. In other words, to interdependent love through the church. (laughs) Yikes. (laughs) In hindsight, it does seem a bit optimistic, doesn't it? Maybe a lot optimistic. Something certainly went awry in there somewhere. Anyway, Paul was an organizer, and his first visit to Ephesus, according to Acts, was a quick three-month introduction, during which he focused on organizing Jewish people in the synagogue. The seeds he planted there were watered by a few other organizers who worked with him, Apollo, Aquila, and Priscilla, other Jews who were part of the sect called the Way the followers of Jesus. Later, Paul returned to the city of Ephesus and spent nearly three years there, now organizing Gentiles as well as Jews. And that's the context for this letter, which focuses a lot on this thing called unity. The idea is that God has done this amazing thing in Jesus, namely to destroy the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility between Gentile and Jew, allowing Gentiles to be adopted into the covenant promised to the Jewish family that originated with Abraham. Huh. (laughs) I imagine this felt, well, a little different to Jews who were an oppressed minority in the Hellenistic city of Ephesus than it did to Gentiles. Did the Jewish members of the way want to do this unity with Gentiles thing? It's a question, right? Certainly, it is a viable question for BIPOC folks in this country whether they want to do unity in organizations with white folks who, like the Gentiles in this passage, enjoy privileges based on our proximity to imperial power. Privileges that are distributed differently according to our other identities, of course, but privileges nonetheless. 
I think, truth be told, I am struggling myself with wanting to do unity with people who are not queer right now. That's a confession. There are ways that homophobia and heteronormativity show up, even in our scrappy little mostly queer church, and it grates on me. And sometimes I fantasize about having a queer-only space. I'm just saying. Too often what passes for unity and being at peace or in movement contexts working together is painful for those who are not in the socially privileged group, which of course mostly I am, but still when I'm not, it's hard. And yet there is this persistent sense that we are meant to be together, to figure out some way to make this all work so that everyone can thrive. The interdependent web of life, right? I feel that too. This is the stuff we're up against, I think, with this week's passage, which comes from chapter four. Chapters one through three are all about this miraculous thing that God has done in Jesus to bring these two groups, Jews and Gentiles, together into one body. Chapter four, which I'll read in a minute, begins to move us into a discussion of how we're supposed to respond to what God has done. This is Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But, speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. That's the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4. So there's this stuff in here about unity, about bearing with one another, being patient with one another. There's stuff about our relationship to leadership, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, whose job it is to raise up more leadership, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, as it says. And finally, there's this exhortation to grow all the way up, 
to achieve maturity to the full measure of the full stature of Christ. And I gotta say, my hackles are up. I'm feeling all the ways these concepts of peace and unity and patience have gotten watered down into a kind of can't-we-all-just-get-along muddle, and how that muddle makes anyone who tries to advocate for justice seem divisive and immature, like we're not doing church right, and how all of this just serves the unjust status quo. So I went back and read the whole letter to the Ephesians, and I think maybe part of the problem is that possibly of necessity, the lectionary chops the letter up into these bite-sized bits. In the process, we lose the flow of Paul's argument. So maybe you noticed that I'm a little crabby in how I'm approaching the text this week. I'm having kind of a hard time with church right now, with the whole idea that we're supposed to come together with people we might never otherwise have encountered and somehow make a body with them. I mean, I go to church with the most beautiful, loving, generous, interesting people. I mean, sure, there are also irritating in that way that all people are irritating when you get to know them really well. But it's not like I think I could find a better group of people. These folks are incredible. But there's a chafing. And as much as I want it to be about them, about them being wrong, I think it actually might be quite a lot about me. I think there are some ways that I'm being called to mature, to grow up in my faith. And I just don't know how yet. I'm having growing pains, maybe. I find myself wanting to complain about what feels like entitlement among some of the straight folks and folks of more means in the congregation. Entitlement and a desire to be centered. In other words, for things to feel familiar and comfortable for them. I think entitlement is a real thing among people who are accustomed to fitting in more comfortably to the dominant culture. I'm sure I have it too, as a white person, in ways that I can't even see. And sometimes privileged folks use language of unity and even love to mask their entitlement while still insisting on their own way. And it's chafing. And yet, I also know that sometimes I try to make something a big capital J justice issue, homophobia or class oppression, something I can be outraged about, when really my feelings are just hurt, or I feel disregarded or threatened. In other words, sometimes my ego likes to put on a justice crusader costume in order to protect itself, and, if I'm honest, in order to keep doing what I've been doing and not have to change. The alternative, of course, is vulnerability. Doesn't it always come back to that? Talking about what I'm feeling instead of what everyone else is doing wrong. But who wants to do that? There's a meme that has been making the rounds on social media lately that goes like this. That unrelenting need to prove you're right, it's a trauma-based response 
from a place where you were always meant to feel wrong. I really, really relate to this meme. And that trauma-based response in me as a woman, as a queer person, as someone raised poor, well, it sometimes gets mixed up with my desire for justice to come. And that makes me self-righteous and obstreperous and not all that effective. Not exactly the humility, gentleness, and patience that Paul is calling for. Now, I want to be really, really, really clear here. I definitely don't want to imply that I or anyone else who is frustrated with entitlement just needs to be nicer and more accepting of the people who are acting it out. And that's exactly how I think passages like this week's get used in the church. And it makes me mad. What am I trying to say? Well, maybe I'll start with what I think Paul is trying to say. In the first three chapters, he's talking about what God has done in Jesus. This amazing, incredible thing that makes it possible for Jews and Gentiles to be together. And in those chapters, he makes it really clear to the more privileged Gentiles that they have received a great gift. He reminds them that they had been dead in their transgressions, ruled by a spirit that kept them mired in ego struggles, competition, greed, and envy. He also implies that Jewish followers of the way were not immune from that spirit, but that more recently it has been Gentiles that have been the most possessed by it. Now, of course, he's talking here about, say it with me, Rome and the spirit of empire that possesses its subjects much as white supremacy possesses white people in our U.S. context. He goes on to say that Gentiles have been separate from Christ without hope and without God in the world. Mm, mm, mm. I don't know, but I feel like there is something here about whiteness, separate from Christ, without hope and without God in the world. I'm certainly not the first one to say that whiteness is all about separation. It was designed to divide white people from the rest of humanity, right? To set us aside as special. Nor am I the first to say that whiteness separates white people from ourselves, each other, the majority of people on the planet, our bodies, our emotions, and God. But Jesus has done something that has the power to heal that. I think that's what Paul is saying here. But we have to perceive that it's a gift, an act of pure grace. We didn't earn it. And Paul is asking us, begging us even, to respond in a way that acknowledges that grace, namely with humility. The Greek word is actually translated something like lowliness of mind. In other words, not thinking we're all that. Recognizing that we are new here that we don't actually know how to be a part of things. And so just act accordingly. In order to be joined with Jesus and their Jewish counterparts, those first Gentile converts had to move toward the vulnerability that characterized their social position. And this applies to white people too, I think. We're going to have to let loose of our privileged lives and move into solidarity with black, indigenous, and other people of color. It's downward mobility. It's going to be uncomfortable. 
and we're not going to get it right. And if we're lucky, people are going to point that out to us. This is so hard. I think most of us struggle to differentiate humility from humiliation. And most of us have also been humiliated way too many times in this world. We have conditioned responses, ways of avoiding feeling that humiliation that often involve trying to control things or doubling down on being right and having our way or engaging our fight, flight, freeze, appease responses to trauma. And none of that serves unity, whatever unity is. I've been thinking so much lately about trauma, about how pervasive it is about how it is distributed unevenly across our social locations, but how almost all of us are carrying it at this point and responding to one another out of it and making big old messes. We talk a lot about white fragility, and I think white fragility, honestly, is a trauma response. I'm not saying that to excuse it, not at all. But if, as white folks, we're going to midwife people out of it, we need to know it for what it is, a trauma response. There is, I think, this terror of being cast out of community because that's what has been done to us and to our people, all of us and all of our people, over and over again, over centuries upon centuries. We have been cast out of the interdependent web of life on which our very survival depends. And we've collaborated with the casting out of others as a way not to be cast out ourselves. And there is so much trauma and shame. And this, I think, is what Paul says Jesus has put an end to. He made captivity itself captive. It's as if by taking on the ultimate humiliation himself, by allowing himself to be cast out and abandoned, tortured, and left to die. But then, being raised from the dead, Jesus and God revealed that there really is no place you can be cast off to where you are not witnessed, accompanied, loved, and from which you can't also be brought back. That's the resurrection promise, and it's all gift. It's this sure knowledge that you can't ultimately be thrown away, that is meant to enable us both to speak the truth in love and to hear the truth in love. Both are risky. Both can be terrifying. Both can tempt us to harden, puff up, put on the justice cape to try to make ourselves seem bigger than we are, like I was talking about earlier. The assurance that we've been accepted and can't be thrown away is meant to restore the feedback loop which is the only way we're going to be able to live together without doing constant harm to one another. Unity is impossible without the feedback loop, without speaking and hearing the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love is not so much telling people what they're doing wrong or how they are wrong, as it is saying with humility and vulnerability how you are being impacted. That's so much harder. And also, I am appreciating reminders from folks in the healing justice world that unity doesn't mean we all get to be all up on one another all the time. 
In her new book, Holding Change, Adrienne Marie Brown reminds us over and over again that the outcome of mediation processes is often not that people will be best friends. Often the best possible outcome is that folks determine what boundaries they need in order not to do harm to each other. Prentice Hemphill has said that boundaries are the distance from which I can love you and me simultaneously. Sometimes that means we need to caucus by racial identity for a while. Sometimes it means you are doing unity with the people you can, and I'm doing unity with the people I can, and somehow together we make a whole. All of this, being able to give and receive feedback in a humble, right-sized way, being able to set and respect boundaries, all of this does indeed require maturity. It requires us to be right-sized, regular-sized people, as one of my spiritual teachers has been putting it lately. It requires us to soften and become vulnerable and teachable. And I think it also requires us to be gentle with ourselves when we fail at it. I've been learning so much lately from the disability justice community, folks like Patty Byrne and Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samrasina and Mia Mingus and Elliot Fukui about how unreasonable it is that we expect ourselves and each other to be able to do everything all the time for ourselves. How steeped that is in American individualism and self-reliance and by the way, ableism and how absolutely unnatural it is. When we live in interdependent community, we don't all have to be perfectly mature at all times. We can hold the maturity for each other. We can hear each other out, coach each other in speaking up and in listening well. We can midwife each other toward maturity, which may be what it means, after all, to equip the saints for ministry. Amen. Your call to action this week is pretty simple. Just do some writing or talking with others about what all this brings up for you. How is it landing in your body? What does it mean to receive your worthiness, value, and acceptance as a gift from God through Jesus or what Jesus did? What would that make possible for you? And who would you be emboldened to talk with, either to speak the truth in love or to hear it? Here's a hint. If there's someone whom you're complaining to others about or to whom you are giving long speeches in your head, that might be someone to talk with. Just saying from my own experience. Who can help you with this process? Who are your midwives in this maturity? Who can support you in being in and staying in community? And then whose maturity are you midwifing? That's what I got for you this week, folks. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. You can comment on our podcast at SoundCloud. 
search for The Word is Resistance. You can also comment on this episode where we've posted it on our Facebook page. Look for Surge Faith. Or visit our website, surge.org, to respond to our listener survey. We'd love it if you'd give us a like wherever you're listening to this podcast. That helps us reach more people. Be sure to subscribe and check us out next time when we'll have a resistance word from Will Green. If you appreciate this content and long to live into this kind of world, please consider making a donation to Showing Up for Racial Justice. We split every donation with a movement partner doing amazing work. This month, we'll be contributing to Soul Force, a 20-year-old LGBTQI organization that works to sabotage Christian supremacy and end the political and religious oppression of all marginalized people. You can donate online at bit.ly backslash surge sf. That's B-I-T dot L-Y backslash surge sf. Or find our podcast page at surge.org. Look under the Our Work tab and then click on, click on Surge Faith. We'll share the link on social media, too. Thanks for helping support this podcast and organizing white people to show up for racial justice and the new world we're building together. Speaking of which, you've been hearing a song called We Are Building Up a New World. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado, in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song in our podcast. Finally, I want to thank our sound editor for this week, Max Pearl. Max, so much love and gratitude to you. That's it for now, friends. So many blessings to you for far-reaching healing, deep transformation, and loving connection as we build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett.